So we're continuing our journey in, in Corinthians just for the next uh, few weeks, and then obviously Easter will come. We'll take a little uh, break, obviously, round about Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. But we're still in 1 Corinthians, and uh, into that part of the book where Paul is, is engaging with the church in questions of how to worship and what, 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 what the priorities uh, of a church that worships together are and ought to be. So we're going to look today at uh, 1 Corinthians 11 um, and read there verses 17 to 34. There's Bibles on tables at the side here, and there's, I think, well, there used to be. I'm not sure if there's some at the back or not. Uh, if you want to grab a paper Bible, but you may have an electronic one that you can look at. So I'm reading for the New International Version. So from verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Amen. I don't know what, uh, in a group as diverse as this, your experience is or may have been of, of sharing in communion in church. Uh, some people I know will have come from uh, very formal uh, church backgrounds, and some may have come from very informal church backgrounds. And some of you may have 
been in all sorts of different types of settings where you've uh, shared the Lord's Supper together. I certainly have, and some of the more meaningful and memorable ones uh, have not necessarily been the, the kind of the formal church ones. But then, probably the, most, the, the first most significant encounter I ever had with God the Holy Spirit took place in a congregational church in Kirkcaldy in Fife at their evening service in a very low-key gathering where there was only probably about 10 to 15 people there. So our experience of sharing in the Lord's Supper may be very diverse and various. And, and I think that probably, certainly in the Church of Scotland and in the Reformed tradition of the church, uh, we've made the Lord's Supper something that, that bears probably very little resemblance to the way, certainly, that the early church broke bread and shared life together. When I first went to my last charge before I came to Glasgow in a place called Gerloch Head, which is about an hour out of Glasgow, um, communion was a very solemn affair. I mean, it was, it was a, such a solemn affair that the elders, they used to kind of line up in the vestibule with the plates of bread and, the, and the, the little trays with all the little mini shot glasses of communion wine and so on in them. And, and, and you could feel, you could smell the fear. <laughs> When we first went there, they, they, there was some unwritten rule that said you had to wear black. And so everybody wore either black or a very dark gray suit. <clears throat> wasn't that long that they'd stopped wearing tailcoats and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and the church had the, the white cloth up on the table at the front, and then the first few pews had white cloths on them. And Ian and I were having a chat earlier on about that because I reckon most people don't understand why we put cloths on. <laughs> why do you put cloths on the pews at communion? Does anybody know the answer to that? I mean, is it just to make the place look white and nice so the more white cloths there are, then the, the purer the place looks because communion's all about us being pure and Jesus, right? Wrong. The reason they put cloths on the pews is because the table that we eat at or around is, is the table up the front. Oh, look, there's one over there. And therefore, the pews had white cloths on them to mark that this was an extension of the table. We've all had extending tables, right, where you split them and pop up a bit in the middle and make it bigger because you've got extra people there. Well, putting white cloths on the pews was a way of extending the table and saying, even though you're in pews, you're really sitting at the table. See, the trouble is most people don't know that, <laughs> which is why all that stuff gets lost. And so my experience certainly in the church of, of taking communion has often been marked by uh, that kind of stiff formality and solemnity and gloom that bore or bears very little resemblance, I would contend, to the way that the church celebrated and broke bread and shared the cup and remembered Jesus in the, in the early church. But of course, Paul is writing this letter to a church which has uh, got a very different way of, of, of 
remembering Jesus in the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup. He's writing to a church where the context is, as we've seen going through, and and forgive me those of you who've been here every week, but just briefly, this is a gathered church in a city that is multicultural, multi-ethnic, socially, economically, very diverse, a crossing point on trade routes in Greece, and therefore a church representative of every stratum of society. And one of the challenges in a church like that, where people are so diverse and so different, is that what can easily happen is that the church just forms into cliques. It forms into groups of people who are like one another. So the slaves get to sit in that corner, and the rich people get to sit in that corner, and the educated people get to sit in another bit. And the people who speak the same language or from the same culture, speak, uh, they, they kind of hang together. And one of the themes going through this letter that Paul writes is challenging this church, which seems in so many ways to be splitting off into little groups and in so doing, losing sight of the core fundamental challenge of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel is the bringing together, the reconciling of disparate people, every tribe, tongue, nation on earth, and that vision in Revelation will be gathered together in Jesus. And every social, cultural, linguistic, economic, educational, ethnic barrier that has ever existed, and all the other divides, all overcome in Jesus. Because what is at the core What is at the core of what God desires is His love for you, His unconditional, unmerited, undeserved, outrageous love that reaches out to people in order to embrace them and bring them back into Him. That's the scandal of the gospel. Whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we love because He first loved us. The leadership team was, or most of the leadership team, were away in a little retreat just Friday, Saturday. And we were just reflecting on that thought, on the first love of God. See, most of, most of our experience, we were, we were thinking about this in a little book that we were reading. Most of our experience of love is, is the second love. What's the second love? Well, that's our attempt at loving. Our attempt at, at loving as parents, as children, as brothers and sisters, as friends. Our attempts at loving other people. So often that's our experience of love, and that's how we define love. And every film that comes out, and every book that's written, and poetry and plays, they wrestle with the theme of love, and human love, and its, its, its uh, fragility, its brokenness, its vulnerability, and how we get hurt and damaged, because that second human love in families and relationships so often disappoints or lets us down. 
Our parents, with the best will in the world, did not get it 100% right. We, as friends and those loving other people, have not got it 100% right. Our experience of loving and being loved is is broken and fragile and imperfect, and we have not got it 100% right or been the recipients of 100% reliable and faithful love. We, We deal with this kind of broken love. We try our best. But that's not the nature of God's love. He first loved us. God's love doesn't look for something lovable in you or me. God's love doesn't wait till He finds something vaguely desirable in you and says, well, all right then, there's something there I might just be able to love in him or her. You have a long time looking with some of us. (laughs) But God is love. It's the nature of God. He is its source. And therefore, God's love does not require to find something lovable in you. God's love is a one-directional outreach of His love and His grace that you don't deserve and you'll never be good enough for. And because He loves us, and as we grasp and dare to believe, because it takes courage and faith. You know, we have an awful lot of of inner hang-ups and low self-esteem and self-loathing and negative words and things from other people that, 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 that stand as barriers to us daring to believe that God loves us. And God first loved us. And as we grasp His love, and the extent of it, so we, in turn, are best able to love other people. The person that can love other people unconditionally is the one who has grasped that they themselves are loved unconditionally by the living God. If God is for us, as Paul says in Romans, who can be against us? the one who created you in his image, if the one who is the highest power and truth and reality in the universe is for you, if he loves you and is on your side, then who else is there that matters, really? And so, love is the very music of heaven. Love is the very character and quality of our relationship with God and is the oil that lubricates every relationship in life. The church in Corinth had the opportunity with all of this diversity people drawn from different cultures and nations, from different backgrounds, people who had so little in common. They might have struggled to find three things in common with some of the people in the church in Corinth. 
And Paul's challenge to this people was that you're a people and your highest calling is to be a people of love. Your highest calling is to be a people who represent, who live out the love that God has for you and for others. And so, as much as we will come to this passage, we are coming to this passage, which is about the mechanics of communion, Paul is more grieved by the fact that here is a church that hasn't grasped the core underlying principle, which is, what is it all about? God is calling His church to be a statement of a people who model and demonstrate outrageous grace and love, which means that they look out for one another, which means that they don't rank themselves according to status or economics. And so, Paul writes this pretty stern bit of 1 Corinthians, and he starts off saying in the following directors, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So what did what did what did this what was so offensive to Paul? Well the context that they were meeting in to eat was not dissimilar from the context in which we meet at Cafe Church. Actually that's part of the reason why we do Cafe Church like this. Because when the early church met, they met around food and around tables. And they met in the context that they broke bread and shared the cup in the context of, of, of a love feast. And that was the context in which that Paul is speaking of here. The church would gather and they would uh, share a meal together. And as part of that meal, would break bread and share the cup and they would remember Jesus in the, in, in the consistent context all the way from the Last Supper where Jesus first gave the meal. We started eating together at Cafe Church for one very simple reason. When this church was planted, none of us knew each other. And the best way to get to know people is around a table and over food because it's the one thing that we know what to do, right? We know how to eat. Boy, do we know how to eat. And so the relationships that we have in this church have been nurtured around the table and over food for good New Testament reasons. But here's the church where when they gathered, the rich people who could get there early because they had slaves to do their work for them, and they had servants and people who would do things for them, they would get there early, and they would just start eating. And then the people who had to work hard, the people who had come in from the fields or who had a trade or, or who had fixed hours and manual work and so on, they couldn't get there till later when they knocked off. And of course, by the time they got there, all the food was gone. And people had eaten all the food, and they drunk all the wine, and so the rich people, the idle rich with time on their hands, had had a party to themselves and left nothing at all for the poor people or the workers or the folks who were coming in later on. 
And so Paul recognized that here's a church in which there are divisions. Now, they had divisions earlier on about leadership. Who follows Paul? Who follows Peter? Who follows Apollos? But these are other divisions. These are just the, the social economic divisions. And one of the reasons I uh, challenged you to go and find someone you'd never talked to before and find three things you had in common was because I insist, as a leader in this church, <laughs> that we see one another as a community and a family, and we belong to one another. And my goodness, in terms of culture and background and where you're from, we're a pretty diverse bunch of people. But you see, our calling and responsibility is that we understand ourselves as a community that are called to trump the divisions of the world and to affirm Jesus' calling to be a people who are committed to one another in love. And it'll be out of the context of that loving community that we discover who each other are. We discover the gifts that God has given. We had a great time when we were away just, just recognizing the leadership team, I mean, just recognizing gifts and the opportunities that, that, that arise from that. And so Paul takes them to task. Because here was a church that had already begun to fall foul of what the church, to its shame, has fallen foul of for centuries. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And the bitter, brutal legacy of denominationalism in the Christian church has been the arguing and the dividing and the subdividing of Christians saying, what I believe is truer than what you believe. And I'm right and you're wrong, and I'm not going to have company with you anymore because I'm, I'm, I've got the truth. Spent a happy couple of hours on Wednesday afternoon with a bunch of leaders from uh, Christian churches and denominations right across the board, and, and we, we got a big map of Glasgow out, and we were just recording where there was a church that was bearing witness to Jesus, that was, that was bearing witness to the gospel, that, that had a, you know, a, 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 an evangelical heart and a desire to see people come to Jesus, irrespective of what the, the badge above the door said. You know, it was such an encouraging exercise. It can be so tempting to say, where are the church, well, as a church of Scotland minister, where are the churches of Scotland? It was such a healthy exercise to say, oh, there's a really good church of the Nazarene there. There's a really good Salvation Army there. Episcopal Church are doing a great work there. Methodist Church are doing something really good. There's some really good independent churches here, here, and here. Now, for some people, that is anathema. Because if it's not ours, it's not the truth. <laughs> but I would want to gently steer that thinking to this verse. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Does God have to choose? <laughs> and so Paul was offended by a church that was fracturing along the lines of people who were desperately wanting God to do that thing which we did when we were kids. You remember when you were kids 
and like your parents would give you like a coloring in competition or a junk modeling or just something to while away another day in the school holidays when it was raining, you know, and you'd, you'd have this task, you know, and so you'd all make something. And then you bring it to your parents and you say, what do you think? And you'd all line up there, you know. And then you'd ask that question. Which one is the best? Now, as a child, I get that, particularly because I've got an identical twin brother, and me and my big sister didn't always get on too well. So, you know, there was a certain determination to win. Which one's the best? Because we want to know that we won and got it right, that we were the best. Maybe you didn't. Maybe that's just my problem. (laughs) But I think there's a lot of competitive people in the world. And so from the child's perspective, we want to know, am I the best? Have I got your favor the most? Have I done the best job? Now, those of you that are parents, and I know that not everybody is, but as a parent, let me tell you that that is a nightmare moment as a parent. When your children come to you because you love all your children equally and differently, And so suddenly your children are asking you to choose one of them and make them better than the others. I suppose in schools it's the dilemma of whether we have sports day or whether we have potted games. Is there such a thing as winning and being the best? And so here's a church in common with denominationalism around the world that is saying to God, pick me, pick me, I'm the best, I've got the most truth. And the Father is saying, I want you to love one another. That's the radical statement. That despite the differences, and they're sincerely held differences, and maybe there are, yes, some rights and some wrongs, But the greater calling is that you love one another. The greater calling is that we honor and respect one another. The greater challenge for this church and this church is that we look to say, how may we be one and declare to a world that loves division of any and every kind that there is a power and a force which is greater than our inclination and instinct for division. And that is the power of God's grace and His love. The power of God's reconciling gospel where Jesus, who was without sin, who was the best, gave His life for all of us who are steeped in sin and riddled with it. And so He takes this church to task for this blind, divisive policy where they would just turn church into a knees-up for those who got there on time and could afford plenty of food and were oblivious to the poor coming in later for whom there was nothing left. Where is that a statement of the outrageous grace and compassion of God? Where does that reflect Jesus who had compassion on 5,000 people because they were hungry and there was nowhere to get anything to eat? Where does that reflect Jesus' concern 
for the basic needs of people. And so he points them back and he says to them, do you know what I received from the Lord? What I also passed on to you. And so he comes to them and he says, you know, this, this meal that is the climax of your fellowship meal, your love feast, this meal comes from Jesus. This is not yours, and it's not mine either. I just passed on something that Jesus himself told you you were to do. And you're not doing it properly, and you're not doing it well. And ironically, he says, it was on the night when Jesus was betrayed. (laughs) On the night that Jesus was betrayed by selfish self-interest, he broke bread and fed the disciples who were gathered in that upper room and declared an association, a symbolic picturing, an acting out of broken bread pointing to a body that would shortly be broken upon a cross. And wine poured out pointing forward to the blood that they would witness pouring from Jesus, from his wounds on his head and his hands and his feet and his side and everywhere else where they flogged and scourged him. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he points them back to Jesus and what it was that Jesus did for them. And so then he goes on to say this verse, and if there's one, this, this, this is a contender, this verse, for the most misunderstood and misapplied verse in Scripture. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Please note it says, in an unworthy manner. Why am I making a big deal of that? Because so many people have read it and thought it said, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup and is unworthy drinks judgment on themselves. My friends, we're all unworthy. There is not one of us who is worthy. But the Lord's Supper is a gift of God's outrageous grace who gives to those who are not worthy these signs and symbols of his death for their forgiveness. What the Corinthians were doing and what we have to guard against doing is not recognizing or taking seriously what we're doing when we take communion. You see, the Corinthians were just chowing down on a big fat meal, get to the end and round it off with a bit of bread and a slug of wine. It seems that the distinction between the, the meal and the part where they were asked to remember Jesus had grown pretty poor. And so it's not that we are to be scared of communion. And indeed, there are traditions of the church that have made a big thing of, of uh, fencing the tables and keeping people back who, who may not be. Now, for good reasons, it's to, to, to challenge and encourage people to approach and take seriously um, what, what communion is. 
but misapplied, it can very quickly lead people to think, oh, I'm not good enough to take communion and I never will be. Absolutely right, you never will be. Except by the grace of God and the power of the cross and the gift of Jesus. And so we're going to take communion shortly. And so what we're invited and commanded to do in Scripture here is to examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink from the cup. And not to examine ourselves to see if we're good enough or bad enough, to see if we've earned enough brownie points with Jesus this week to make it just about okay, because we never will. If that's how we approach, we've misunderstood Rather, the invitation is to examine ourselves so that we can come honestly to Jesus and by faith as we receive these symbols and elements of bread and wine and say to God, thank you for dying for my forgiveness. And I recognize in taking into myself these symbols of bread and wine that stand for Jesus' brokenness and self-giving for me, I recognize in these elements the power of what Jesus has done. And so Paul makes a connection, makes a connection in the church with uh, those the church was apparently in part not physically healthy. A number of you have fallen asleep. That's Paul's code for, for those who had died in the Lord. And he's just enjoining the church to recognize that, you know, if we put ourselves out of the place of God's grace by a cavalier or a disrespectful or an ungodly approach to how we handle the things of God, then we open ourselves up to the attacks of the evil one. And so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Make sure that there's enough and make sure that you recognize what you're doing. It's not just that the church is a cafeteria. It's not just that it's a place to get a snack. And when we come together as Cafe Church, we don't just provide lunch because it's that time of day. <laughs> we do it to create the opportunity for you and for me to affirm and enter in to the body life of the church of Jesus Christ. A place where around the tables you can talk and eat and relate to one another and in that fellowship, know Jesus as host at every table and know that you're engaged already in an act of worship, even in the way you love and honor one another and show the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you're just hungry, says Paul, go and eat at home or go and get a sandwich from Sainsbury's or a pie from Greg's. Go and get a coffee from Starbucks. If you're just coming for food, there's plenty of places you can go. But the meal that we eat before the service, the bread and the wine that we're about to share now, they're different. And they say to God and to one another, we're family. 
We're community. We're those who've received the outrageous grace of God in Jesus. Amen.